Hello everyone, Trevor Shelby here. I just wanted to give everybody a heads up about this episode. It's going to be a little confusing for a lot of the long-time uh, listeners here because the format is going to be way different, and it's because I am starting a YouTube series that is Forgotten True Crime. So definitely go check it out. This is just kind of a preview of that. This is not how our episodes are going to be going forward. But um, yeah, let me know what you think. I am interested in doing more of these kind of formatted episodes in the future. I'm not against it. The links to the YouTube channel is down in the description. So go check it out. Subscribe, uh, like the video. Uh, yeah, so I hope you guys enjoy. What we're going to talk about today is an unsolved murder that dates back all the way to 1909. That's currently 113 years ago. But that's the least crazy thing about this. You won't believe some of the details in this case. So let's get to it. One, two, three, and... Hello everyone, my name is Trevor Shelby and I'm your forgotten true crime investigator. Today we are talking about the mysterious death of Kate Teal. If you like unsolved crimes, let me know in the comments below and we'll look into covering a lot more in the future. But I'd like to know what your preference is so we kind of know what to prioritize. Also, this is our first like official episode of our video series, so make sure you subscribe for more content just like this one. In 1909, Kate Teal was described as quite the character. She lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and in a house that was divided into like several apartments. The room that she rented was in the rear of the house on the second floor. This room was somewhat desirable because it had a short balcony that was attached to it. Miss Till was well known in town as quite the drinker. She lived where she did because the Silver's Saloon was just across the street. She would go over to the saloon several times a day just to fill her bucket up with beer. She would then carefully carry her bucket back to her room to spend the next couple of hours drinking. Once the bucket was empty, she would then return to the saloon and fill her bucket again. A few months before this, Miss Till would be joined by the hip by her husband, Samuel Teal. They loved each other as much as they loved drinking. Sam was quite a bit older than Kate and he died of natural causes. Distraught, Kate propped Sam up in a chair next to the fire and then put herself in a four-day drunk stupor before reporting her husband's death. She told officers that she knew that he'd be buried in a potter's field and that it really bothered her. If you don't know what a potter's field is, then that's okay. A quick explanation would be that that's a place where the city or county would bury somebody that didn't have any money. It was done at the city's or county's expense, which was done very cheaply. After her husband's death, Kate's main companionship came from two small dogs that she had taken in. They're both very noisy, and she let a friend take one of them. The other was a small brown dog that she loved very much, 
despite how loud that dog constantly was. Now, we already established that Kate was quite the drinker. So on Friday, June 4th, 1909, when Kate failed to come out of her room to go get a drink at the saloon, Mary Luca, who lived across the hall, became worried. Kate's dog had been barking nonstop all night and now all day, and there were no signs that Kate had been up and out. So Mary knocked on Kate's door and she waited for an answer and didn't get any. The only thing that happened was she just excited the little small dog that was in the room. Mary then tried to enter the room, but the door was locked. So Mary decided that she would try another tactic. Next door to Kate's room, it was a vacant room. It was unlocked and it was also at the rear of the home. She entered that room and went out on its balcony, which was connected to Kate's balcony. She climbed over the small railing that separated the two balconies, and then she went over and peered through the window in Kate's room. What she saw, she would never forget. Kate was in bed face up in a bloody mess. She was obviously dead, and Mary ran to alert the police. When officers arrived, it was Sergeant Smith with the St. Louis Police Department who was the lead detective on the case. He tried to enter through the bedroom door, but found it locked. He then forced his way into the room and was immediately attacked by Miss Kate's small brown dog. Sergeant Smith took out his baton and hit the dog hard enough to cause it to yelp and flee from the officer. It took refuge under the bed where Miss Kate was lying dead. The room was a complete mess. The contents of the closet were pulled up and out and there was refuse all over the room. Miss Kate was lying face up on her bed. She was covered in blood and was clutching a butcher knife. It first entered the officer's mind that Kate might have taken her own life. But upon further investigation, he noticed that the blood had come from two stab wounds that were very narrow and not large like that butcher knife. And also that butcher knife was, well, very clean. Not a drop of blood was on it. Kate's body was taken to the morgue where it was examined by a coroner's jury. These are typically comprised of several doctors who would independently come up with a cause of death and then in some cases place the blame on a suspect in that case. Unlike a trial jury, their decision was based purely upon what they thought happened and they didn't really hear arguments from both sides of the case. From the state of her room, Sergeant Smith didn't believe that this was a robbery. It was apparent from the items that were in the room that Kate didn't really have a whole lot. But he also noted that it appeared that the room had been searched, like things had been moved around quite a bit. The other tenants in the home were Mary Luca, Mike Machinica, and 12-year-old Eva Dayton. They and their families who lived in the home were all arrested and brought to the police station for questioning. By the time they got everyone back to the station, officers had learned that Kate Teal had been dead for about 36 hours. 
This bitter death on Thursday in the early morning hours, probably sometime around midnight, maybe 1 a.m. Police separated everyone and then questioned them one by one. The officer soon learned that Miss Kate's dog had been barking nonstop since Thursday. They paid it little mind because the dog was very energetic and it would bark at just about everything. On Wednesday evening, the night before the murder, three witnesses walked by Miss Kate's room. The door was open and they all stated that they saw Miss Kate's friend, John DeBorta, sitting with her. They were drinking beer out of a blue bucket. The bucket was noticeable because it was not the same bucket that Kate typically carried around and drank from. The three witnesses again, their names are Mary, Mike, and the 12-year-old Eva. Eva was the most notable witness because not it wasn't just her age, it was that she knew John personally and would have recognized him in just about any situation. Officers searched the other tenants' rooms and found that there was nothing that connected them to the crime. One of the things they were looking for was a gold cufflink. They found a gold cufflink in Miss Kate's room, thought to have been dropped by the killer. They sought for its pair as a way of identifying who the killer was. When they found nothing that linked them to the crime, they let the tenants go. At this point, officers learned more about the weapon used to kill Miss Kate. It was a very unique knife, about one inch in diameter and about 12 inches long. Imagine a knife with a blade the length of a standard ruler. It was that long. In these times, knives like this were typically found in animal processing jobs they were called killing knives because they were long, sharp, and they were used to kill the animals in that process. Kate had two stab wounds, one through her eye that went through her brain. The other was in her side that went through her lungs and pierced her heart. Both of these would have killed her very quickly. They finally ruled out suicide as a possibility when the coroner made this statement. The wound which caused the death of Miss Kate Teal was the most extraordinary I have found in my experience. It must have been made with a knife, the blade of which was at least 12 inches long, wielded by a man with almost superhuman strength. The blade of the knife, which was about an inch wide, penetrated the lung and heart in the tissues for a distance of a foot. The same knife was driven through the woman's skull into her brain. By no possibility could a human being, not even a maniac, would wound himself or herself in such a way. Dr. J. Maynard, autopsy physician, to the corner. Now, Detectives started to believe that the killer or killers took this route to get into Miss Kate's room. There was an alleyway next to the home that went to the back part of the home. If you remember, Kate's room is in the back part on the second floor. There is a stairway that actually led to the upstairs from that back door. So the killer, all they had to do 
was go through an unlocked back door up those stairs into the vacant room, which was right next to Kate's room, go out the balcony, over the banister, and then right into her room. Police found that the door to the balcony in Miss Kate's room was unlocked. It was the only door that was unlocked. Her window, which was right next to her bed, it was nailed shut. So the killer didn't enter that way. So whoever did this more than likely knew that, well, Kate kept that door unlocked. The officer's next stop was to see 24-year-old John DeBorta. John worked at the Tam Brothers Glue Factory. Now, when I heard Glue Factory, my ears perked up. Glue has been commonly made from animal parts, especially horses. And, you know, we're looking for somebody that is uh, killing animals here with a killing knife. I did some research on the history of Tam Brothers Glue Factory. I never discovered the type of glue that they made, and I learned that there's just as easy of a chance that the glue that they made was not from animals. The glue factory adjoined the house where Kate was living and had been murdered in. So is there a connection there? I really don't know. Can't really find much on the Tam Brothers Glue Factory. Uh, I did find quite a few documents on its, you know, creation and everything, but not, not its process. Officers visited and questioned John DeBorta for some time at his house. He denied any wrongdoing and was actually surprised to hear of Kate's murder. Officers searched his home and found a coat with some stains on it, and they thought that those stains might be blood. They then found a blue bucket that 12-year-old Eva Dayton described. They took it and the stained jacket as evidence, and then they immediately arrested John on the spot. A second suspect was also arrested. A man by the name of Charles Alwins was also taken into custody when it was reported that he had been telling people around town about the amount of money that Miss Kate had in her room. Townsfolk thought this to be suspicious and turned him in. When interviewed, they found out that Charles, who was a porter for the saloon that Kate frequented, did a job for her three weeks before she was murdered. She needed a screen door hung, and she paid him to do it for her. When she paid him, he swore that she pulled out several large bills out of her jar and actually some pieces of silver. She paid him what was owed, and then she put the jar back from where she got it. Charles had a pretty solid alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murder, so he wasn't really a suspect in this case. But they wanted to know if he told anyone about the money that he saw in her room. And he told officers that he never told anyone. But Charles let police know about who did know about the money in Miss Kate's position, and this person told everyone who would listen in town about it before her death. But before we get to that, this is our first ever video. If you enjoy this content, make sure you like and subscribe. We are committed to putting out more and more content, 
and it will be our first subscribers that help us the most. We also have a podcast under the same name, Forgotten True Crime. Uh, we're pushing up this year to 100 episodes, so make sure you go there and check us out. Now, where were we? Oh, yes. Charles Alwins was just telling the police the name of the person who was always talking about Kate Teal's considerable wealth. It was, well, Kate herself. Before her murder, Kate spent her time, when not drinking, talking about herself and how much money that she had. Detectives always believed that this was a lie because she used a watch that was handed down to her as collateral for loans all the time. She often pawned the watch to make ends meet. Also, the main source of income was from her wealthy brother. He sent her money to keep her going, and he never sent her more than what she needed because he knew that she would just spend it at the saloon. Many others around town would come forward to say that Kate told them that she had a considerable amount of money. Days after the discovery of the body, police let John DeBoer to go. It was found that these stains on the jacket were just not blood, and that being in the room for hours before the murder didn't equate him to being the murderer. Now, when researching this case, I looked to see if John DeBorta had been arrested after this, and somebody by the same name was arrested about 20 years later in Iowa, but upon further investigation, I found that it was not John DeBorta. It was, was actually a person that was a lot younger and actually spent a lot of time in and out of jail. This case would be continued to be investigated, but it was never solved. Personally, I think that Kate might have brought on her own demise if she was walking around telling others that she had a lot of money. I did a lot of searches for a lot of the people in this case that are named. Didn't really find much on any of them. Couldn't really find anything with Mary or Mike. Uh, Eva Dayton lived until about 1980, I believe, and had a very eventful and full life, it seemed. After doing a lot of research on John DeBorta and Charles Alwyns, I really didn't find anything else. Uh, I got excited, I won't lie, when I saw the stuff about the John DeBorta in Iowa, because I was like, ah, oh, there's the evidence, that's him. But it really wasn't. When you're doing historical research, that is commonly the case. You really have to sift through and be careful about what you're pulling. And I really think that in this case, either Kate Teal brought upon her death by bragging about how much money that she had, the watch, and she may have had other jewelry or valuables that she didn't pawn. Now, we also have Charles Alwyns, who has already displayed that he has a big mouth as well. He's gone around town telling everybody about all the money that she had after her death. Uh, who's to say he wasn't doing that before her death? Uh, if he saw her pull out a whole bunch of money and silver you know, that might cause him to run around and tell the wrong people. So if I think anybody had anything to do with this, it may have been unknowingly Charles Alwyns or Kate Teal herself. But let me know what you think in the comments below. 
If you want to know more about this crime, look in our description below. You'll see a link to my blog, truecrime.blog, and you can see all the documents and the cool stuff that I kind of went over when researching this case. A lot of fun. Anyways, I'll see you guys next time. See ya.